The No Sleep Podcast presents Suddenly Shocking, Volume 14. A collection of short, sudden stories with lots of twists and turns. These furiously fast tales are postcard length, and they can take you on long journeys before even leaving the station. So settle in and join us as we serve up these bite-sized stories dripping with dark and foreboding horror. Clean by Melissa Elborn On Saturdays, the bedridden residents in the nursing home are taken for a bath. Anne doesn't want to go, but the carers hoist her up and wheel her in anyway. There is no point in refusing. Her limbs, rigid and inelastic as they may be, can still be pulled up. The loose nightdress can be taken off. The nappy pulled down. Hands push her into the plastic bath chair, strapping her in. A shock of water, too hot on fragile skin. Anne's head slips under the water. The carers' faces peer down at her. Their real faces. Twisted into demented smiles. Bulging eyes that don't match. Cheeks that droop low. Yes, the water shows what they are. Her chest burns, and all she wants to do is breathe in. Anne opens her mouth, and it's only then that their hands pull her out of the water. You're clean now, they say. A Rare Success Story from an English Major by Manon Lysette You know that old saying, those who can, do, those who can't, teach. I graduated with an English major back in 2008, right as the recession hit. After receiving dozens of rejection letters from publishers and not so much as a proof of reception from hundreds more, I was barely scraping by on minimum wage jobs. I waited and waited for my big break, but I eventually realized I was doomed to become the living embodiment of that adage. I had a mountain of student loans to pay back, so I worked my way through teacher's aid positions until finally landing on my feet as a professor in creative writing for a small local college. 
I like to tell myself that if I'd graduated any other year, my manuscripts would have sold like hotcakes and my books would have flown off the shelves. But the truth is, I just didn't have what it took to make it. But this story isn't about me, though. This story is about a student named Trent. Trent is a fantastic student I've taught for two semesters now. He wove excellent prose, treated the assignment rubric like it was a Bible, and always handed in polished work devoid of spelling or grammar mistakes. My only critique of his work is that it can come off as clinical in its execution. Give Trent a mold and he'll fill it exactly to the top. Not a drop more, not a drop less. He applied all my lessons to a T, but he never once tried to push the boundaries. I sensed a kindred spirit in him, and I knew if I could get him to break from his mold, even just a fracture, he would achieve greatness. About a month ago, I invited Trent to my office hours for a one-on-one. I hoped I could knock some sense into him, in a manner of speaking. I laid out this big motivational speech, the kind of speech I wish my professor had given me all those years ago. I told him he could go places with his writing, you know? Said he had so much potential, and if he worked hard, he could write something truly amazing. He could release a bestseller, many bestsellers even. But I explained that readers can tell when authors are passionate about their writing, and I warned him his stories were lacking that extra oomph, that emotion, that connection to the author. I told him if he could put his heart into it, he'd break the ceiling. He was so close to greatness. His stories just needed heart. Trent sat quietly in his seat, nodding along as I spoke. I got the impression I was really getting through to him. He had a gleam of excitement in his eyes for the first time since I'd met him. I could see the cogs in his head turning as he birthed a story in his mind. I was sure he was going to come back with a real banger for me. Maybe we'd submit it to a magazine. Maybe I'd be the one who discovered the new George R.R. Martin. He'd be the talk of the town. And maybe, I thought selfishly, when they interviewed me to talk about his humble beginnings, I'd also be discovered. I didn't see Trent in class for a few weeks following our conversation. That close to the end of the semester, it wasn't that unusual. Attendance isn't nearly as regular or important as people make it out to be. However, I was getting worried at the start of the third week. Worried I'd overstepped and broken his spirit. He must have dropped my class. I saw all my dreams of television interviews shattering one by one. He'd switch careers into something mundane and beneath him, like engineering. I'd be stuck as a professor for the rest of my life. Then, as I headed back to my office after class, I checked my inbox and found a package. It was from Trent. I carefully removed the wrapping paper, revealing a tan, leather-bound book with his name on the cover. I was so proud of him. He'd taken my advice, after all. I inspired him so much, he wrote an entire manuscript by hand. It was called At the Buzzard's Doorstep, and it was remarkable. It was teeming with emotion, existential dread, and the right combination of mystery and adventure. Granted, I thought the brownish ink was an odd choice, but I can look past aesthetic details. 
A few of my dyslexic students over the years have submitted papers in Comic Sans because it's easier for them to read. I encourage my students to do what works for them. I'm here to nurture creative minds, not squash them under 12 points Calibri or Arial or whatever font flavor of the month. I was so engrossed in Trent's story, I managed to ignore the meaty scent that only seemed to get worse. The pulsing sensation coming from the cover, the light shuddering of the pages whenever I touched one, and the odd warmth emanating from the spine. It truly was his magnum opus. It was enthralling, with twists and turns no one could see coming, yet clues were peppered throughout. And I'll admit, though I was beaming with pride, part of me was jealous. Jealous that I wasn't able to cultivate this level of writing. That I held his hand and brought him to greatness, yet I couldn't achieve the same greatness myself. It wasn't until I reached halfway through the novel that I saw it. A hole had been cut through the pages of the second half, forming a nest for a segmented section of what could only be a human heart. A heart that was, despite everything, somehow still beating. Its veins were woven into the pages, pulsing life into every word. I realized then that Trent hadn't broken the mold. I'd given him a new mold. I'd told him to put his heart into it. He followed those instructions to a T. And, I mean, I was right, wasn't I? As I sit here, scalpel in hand, trembling with excitement and foreboding, I think it's time I follow my own advice. House of Whispers by Warren Benedetto The whispering woke me. It was the girl, speaking in a low murmur. I didn't know her name, but I knew her voice. My wife and I had been hearing it since the day we moved in. The house was a quaint Victorian, built in the late 1800s by a local carpenter as a gift for his daughter. She passed it down to her daughter, who passed it down to her daughter, and so on, up until recently. We knew from the moment we first entered that the place was perfect for us. We were made for it. What we didn't realize is that we weren't alone. Did you hear that? There was no response. I rolled over to look at my wife. She was gone. I sat up and squinted into the darkness. Babe? Still no answer. I swung my feet down to the cold hardwood floor. It creaked as I stood. Babe, you okay? An icy wind prickled my skin. Something brushed my shoulder. Out of the corner of my eye, I glimpsed a gauzy white apparition floating behind me. I spun around, then exhaled in relief. <gasps> it was just a curtain blowing in through an open window. I brushed it away. I closed this thing earlier, I thought as I lowered the sash. I know I did. That was the drawback of living in an old house. It seemed to have a life of its own. 
Lights turned on when you swore you had turned them off. Doors and windows opened and closed, apparently of their own accord. Items went missing. Furniture moved by itself. And every once in a while, my wife disappeared. She wasn't usually gone for long, a few hours maybe. Then she'd reappear just as suddenly as she had vanished, with no recollection of where she had been. All she could remember was the whispering. She couldn't understand what was being said, but it didn't seem dangerous. It seemed sweet, she said, almost playful. I shuffled across the bedroom to go look for my wife. My shin collided with something hard. Ow! God damn it! A low wooden bench was toppled over in the middle of the room. I'd walked right into it. Did you move this? I shouted to no one. Suddenly I felt a crushing tightness in my chest as if a giant hand was closing around me. A nauseating wave of vertigo rolled my stomach and my body began to rise from the floor. I tried to fight off whatever was clutching me, but my arms were pinned to my sides. I was completely immobilized. I began to lose consciousness. As the world faded from gray to black, I heard the girl's voice in the darkness. It was louder now and clearer than before. For the first time, I could understand what she was saying. Tommy, give it back. Why should I? Because he's my doll. That's why. It's There by Morgan Wilson. Blood everywhere. On me. On the floor. On the wooden handle dripping down my arm. It was there. On the floor. The poison. The thing that poisoned them all. It seeped. Slunk. Crawled. Inching toward my feet. Back away. Creak. Groan. Shuffle. Groan. She's still alive. Heartbeat. The thing hears it too. Skitter. Slither. Closer. No, 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 no! Run! Leap! The thing beneath my feet. Land. Axe raised. Her eyes open. Blue. Afraid. Thud. Red. On me. Speckles on my face. My chest a bloody mess. The thing, it stops. Black tendrils still. Eyeing me. Wondering 
sink between the floorboards. Disappeared. Where? Frantic look. Can't let it get me. I won't. I won't. It made them hungry. So hungry. They ate and ate. Never full. Empty fridge. Empty kitchen. Empty hamster cage. Empty kennel. Empty neighbor's house. On and on and on. I had to stop them. No choice. Axe in his throat. Gurgles and blood. Axe in her chest. Still breathing. In the head. Thud. Dead. It comes out. Black like tar. Seeping. Oozing. Wanting more. You won't get me. Run outside. Blood. Blood on me. On my axe. Lights. Think. Drop it. Thunk. Whispers. Behind me. Don't move. It's too late. Tendrils at my feet. No. Boiling around my ankles. No, please. On the ground! No, wait. Face in the grass. Knee in my back. Tight metal on my wrists. Stand. Look down. It's gone. Where? 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 Please listen. No, wait. Too late. Back of a car. Red and blue lights. Silence. 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 Is it gone? Whispers in my head. No, no, no. Lean forward. Eyes are green. But there, the black tendril. Wiggle. Squirm. In my eye. It's in me now.
Revenging Machine by B.A. Reese. Stop being such a sissy. Just shake it a little. My older brother Jesse jeered at me. The machine bothered me. I'd sensed something sinister about it ever since we'd stepped inside the rest stop's vending area. I'm not sure if it was the indecipherable graffiti sprayed around its perimeter, or the antiquated appearance of its Spartan supply of snacks. It was empty aside from two bags of potato chips and a few half-melted pastries that drooped over the metal spirals holding them in place. I don't know, Jesse. The food looks disgusting anyway. He pushed me aside. Out of my way, twerp. As I tumbled into the wall, he gripped the machine and shoved. It was heavy, and at first it didn't budge. But eventually, Jesse managed to lift its front legs. When they crashed down again, Jesse's prize fell from the bottom row. Gotcha. With a satisfied smile, he reached into the pickup box. The treats wrapper displayed Clarissa's Jumbo Glazed Honey Bun in red ink. As we departed, a raspy clank drew my attention back to the machine. Somehow it looked like it had moved, if only by a few inches. You sure you don't want any? Jesse waved the honey bun recklessly as we sat in our hotel room that evening. Yeah. Good, because I wouldn't have shared it anyway. As he chewed another bite of the gooey pastry, he seemed to take no notice of what looked to me like its oddly stringy texture. A deep, blunt sound boomed against the door to the hallway. Who do you think it is? Mom and Dad must have forgotten their key. Who else would it be, dummy? He hopped off the bed and approached the door. You should look first. I'm Danny. I'm scared of everything. He pulled the handle. (gasps) What? Jesse found himself facing the vending machine, which wedged its way into the room. Covered my eyes as Jesse screamed. When I peeked, I saw his foot sticking out of the pickup box. With a slurp sound, it too was sucked inside. My parents later found me unconscious. Of course, no one believed my story. Years later, I park at a familiar rest stop. My body shakes as I creep into the vending area and towards a machine covered in graffiti. The label on a pastry on its bottom row reads, Jesse's Jumbo Glazed Honey Bun. Something inside you by Liesel Jones. I left something inside you last night as you dreamt of sleep. My tongue flicked across my fingertips before I reached an immeasurable arm towards you, grasping down from my lonely home in the night sky. Moistened fingers found your belly, gently circled your navel, and sank 
inside, pushed into the warm wetness from which you are made, intent on leaving my gift. Do you recall the sensations? My bony fingers tippy-toeing over every disc of your spine, creeping past your pulsing heart beneath the swell and shrink of your lungs. I inched to the base of your skull, the yielding bulge of your brain. That's where I etched it. The word. The notion. One night soon you'll find it, the thought I wrote inside your mind. And as soon as you see it, as soon as you think it, you'll join me. I think it's beautiful. By Wiley. I was 12 when my grandfather first gave me a cutting from his garden. My cat had passed away, and I'd been inconsolable for weeks. He'd knocked on my door and handed me the most extraordinary rose I'd ever seen. The petals, a vivid arterial red. The stem, a Venus purple. What is it? Well, it's a white rose. <laughs> he'd left the room, chuckling to himself as if he'd told the grandest joke in the world. I placed it in a vase on the windowsill and watched as the water turned pink than red. I'd heard of dying roses, of course, watering the plant with a solution of spring water, fertilizer, and food coloring so the rose would draw in the pigment through tissues in its stem. But who ever heard of dying a white rose red? Years later, when the police came knocking at my door, they asked about that rose. I had it still, dried and pressed and kept in a binder, along with the various cuttings my grandfather had gifted me over the years. I hated to see them go, even if they were technically evidence. There was a rose for every dead girl. Sophie, Leah, Amber. Their DNA centrifuged, extracted, and matched to the missing persons reports. They all looked like me, their white blonde hair parted straight down the middle, eyes as black as freshly turned loam. Sometimes I dream of those girls. I dream of nerve-white roots reaching deep into the soil, wrapping skeletal fingers around pale throats, drinking them up like liquor. The dream always ends the same way, with the ear-shattering percussion of a gunshot. Red spray on white blossoms, then silence. The media spun a narrative of familial obsession, a grandfather infatuated with his granddaughter, 
driven to madness, murder, and, when threatened with capture, suicide. The infinite scroll of comments offered stale armchair psychoanalysis. A monster, they agree. A wicked, ugly-hearted man. I don't think he was wicked. It's a pretty thought that someone could love me so much that they'd die for me. Lie for me. In his final moments, as he stood in that greenhouse gazing upon my handiwork, what thoughts ran through my grandfather's head? Surely he could have turned me in. Surely he could have told them about the cat I'd strung up from the eaves, just to see if it had nine lives. He could have told them about Sophie, Leah, and Amber, and how very much a teenage girl can bleed. Grandfather always emphasized the importance of burying the ugliness of human nature. Jealousy, sadness, anger. Surrendering it to the transformative power of the earth. Letting it flower into something beautiful. But they cremated him before I had the chance to bury him like the others, turning him into fertilizer to nourish the roses he loved so much. Now all I have is this rose, black and bitter as the ash it fed on. I think it's beautiful. Empty by Keith McDuffie. Like water through a sieve, the sand streams through cracks between the fingers of my cupped hands. Piles form where they fell, tiny mountains of pink on an otherwise mostly flat landscape. There are much larger piles too, far off toward the northern shore, and there are other things, not formed by the natural passing of time and trade winds, but by a force I still can't comprehend. And then there's Scott. We awoke on this pink blotch upon the ocean nine days ago. Neither of us recalled events leading to our marooning there as if the world had blinked and forgotten our place. In one moment, our feet were caressed by waves of a rising tide as we sat in lounge chairs on the crowded public beach. Blink, and here we are, quiet, empty, alone, marooned. Exploring our new surroundings didn't take long. What I suppose is an island seems rather small, covered in a powdery pink sand unlike that of the beach we'd suddenly left behind. An impassable, mountainous wall lies a hundred meters or so from the shore, a small stream of fresh water flowing from a crack and into the sea. Far atop the rocks lies a solitary palm tree. We'd been in New Hampshire a moment before. The palm tree was as out of place as we were. 
If not for the stream, the unrelenting sun would have surely caused our demise within a day. We saw no signs of life beyond the two of us and the single tree. No sea life as far out as we could swim. No overhead planes, no distant ships, no crabs sifting through the sand. Nothing to satiate the hunger that was quickly setting in. Three days into our isolation, Scott woke me before the morning sun took hold. There's... there's someone here. Someone else? Where? He was already running off to the far end of the beach. Not sure how he had the strength. I was barely able to get to my feet, let alone maintain footing in the unnaturally soft sand. I caught up to him a few minutes later, breathless, unsteady, and unable to comprehend the scene. Beside where Scott knelt was an intricate sand sculpture of a monkey, laying there as though sleeping. Look at this. No way this is natural. It's, it's too perfect. Someone made this... recently. I didn't waste any time asking the hows and whys about it. Hello? Is anybody there? Hello? I stumbled the beach for hours, calling out until hoarse. The only reply was the gentle lapping of the ocean waves and my own echoes off the distant wall of stone. Scott broke his foot the next day, attempting to climb the steep incline of rock. He gritted his teeth. I'm so fucking hungry. I thought I could get a coconut, leaves, anything from that stupid tree up there. Shit. I'm starving too. I guess you can eat me if I die before you do. No fucking way. I'd eat this sin before I'd eat your flabby ass. And that we both laughed. First time since we'd washed up here. The next day were the crabs. I found them some ways from where the monkey had been, which had by that time become a mere pink pile. Crabs made of sand. Seven of them, perfectly crafted, no detail wasted. No footprints or other traces of their creator remained. I attempted to call out once more, but my voice croaked and drowned in the wind. I trudged further up the beach and came upon a large mound of sand that seemed misplaced. Something stood at the pile's edge. A worn gemstone bracelet. It was the first real sign of the civilized world I'd seen in days, besides the bizarre sand sculptures. I slipped it onto my wrist, a sign of hope that we really weren't as lost as we thought, that rescue was inevitable before real starvation took its toll. The glowing hands of Scott's watch showed just past 11, its date six days from our first here. Tomorrow it'll be a week. 
They have to eat something, man. I'm not sure I can take this much longer. He was right. He was much leaner than I was. For once, my weight was working in my favor. I woke to the sound of Scott eating something. My first thought was that he'd finally snapped and decided to eat his own limp foot. Instead, I found him doing just what he'd promised. What are you doing? He turned to me, face powdered in pink. I watched in disbelief as he threw handfuls of sand into his mouth, licking his lips between every helping. I reached out to stop him, but he swatted my hand away as though I were trying to steal. Get away from me. Get your own. There's a whole beach of it. I limped away and leaned up against the rocks, the shadow of the lone palm extending ahead and toward the water's edge. I let sleep once again take me. I was so goddamn hungry. Too tired to think, too tired to save my friend from eating himself to death. I almost envied that he'd found a way out and was happy about it. I woke at 12.17 a.m. to check on my friend. The time glowed off the hands of Scott's watch when I found him. The sculpture of him, curled fetal where he'd last been, the pink granules of his content face sparkling in the starlight. last granules of sand empty from my hands. I dig in for more, and I a large mound that was once my lone companion in this godforsaken place. With wind and time, the pile will flatten, and all that will remain will be the watch, an empty, makeshift tombstone. As will be, once again, this bracelet. Trending by Sarah Koch. I'd seen the trend on TikTok about unintentionally training your pet to do something, so I thought I'd share mine. Typically, when I turn off the lights and settle into bed at night, I'll pat my chest and my dog will jump up and cuddle with me. I decided to film it one night so I could clip it and post it the next day. But when I saw what actually been crawling out from underneath my bed to cuddle with me, my heart dropped. Though, my next thought was just as alarming. What else could I train it to do? Heartbreaker by Chris Alanot. 
Melinda walks away again. She's crying again. Bile gnaws at my guts. The floor is saturated with her blood. It's deep enough that it splashes as she walks. The neighbors are playing Hit Me With Your Best Shot on repeat, and it always skips as the song gets to the climax. Over and over, Pat sings, Fire away, 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 away. Eventually, the song starts over. When the door closes behind Melinda, the phone rings. I let it. It's George. It's always George. I go into the kitchen and open the fridge. I wonder again how long I was away. There's no way to tell except for the green, stinking rot that puffs out from the refrigerator. There's nothing inside but an oozing boil that used to be a cucumber and a sandwich too far gone to be worth putting in my mouth. For the thousandth time, I try the front door. I don't have the key. I'm convinced that I lost it somewhere. Then I wonder if I'm only wondering that because it will eventually drive me crazy. With a nub of pencil that is more chewed eraser and sharp metal than wood, I mark the wall. There are some marks above it, and there are some below it. They fade. The phone rings louder, and Pat is singing about her real tough cookie. When I return to the couch, my feet track crimson across the carpet. I pick up the phone. If I don't, it'll get louder and louder until my ears start to bleed. And I'll still have to answer it. Hi, George. My God, Eddie, thank God you're home. What's wrong? My voice is flat and hoarse in my ears. I can't even pretend to care anymore. My body remembers, though. I'm sweating, and my breath is coming in short, quick gasps. There's been an accident. What? I say my lines. If I don't, George will keep saying his last words until I reply. Just the same as I replied the first time. Reply, replay, reply. My heart is pounding. Quit it, heart. This is getting old. It's... Oh God, Eddie, it's... It's Melinda. I'm so sorry. George, slow down, man. I wish I could tape myself and just play it back. This wastes energy I'm going to need in two minutes. Music pounds through the wall. I can't take it anymore. I slam my fist against the wall. Shut the fuck up, Benatar! No, George. Not you. He's already well into the details of the accident. I wait until he's done to recite my next line. Stay there, George. I'll be there as soon as I can. The call ends. The doorknob turns. I can hear it even over the unholy caterwauling of the queen of pop rock. Melinda walks in. In the shadows of the doorway, I see that she's broken. She shambles down the hallway on shattered legs that shouldn't support her weight. 
talk, Eddie. Not, hello, not how was your day, not even guess what happened to me today. It's the same as it was the night she left. Except now she comes back to show me. How long ago was it? How long? Where is she, Eddie? Is she here? Melinda is slurring. After work, she went out with her friends and drank wine until she was good and ready to come home. She staggers towards the bedroom. Melinda, sweetheart. There's no way to play this calm. Not now. Stop. Melly, please. She turns her smashed face to look at me. Tears mingled with blood and vitreous. I wonder with shameful curiosity if the tears sting her wounds. She sprays red all over the wall. Don't fucking melly me. How could you, Eddie? This is where she breaks down into silent whole body sobs. For the millionth time, I swallow the lump in my throat and go to her. She'll stand there forever, leaking gore and misery onto the back of my sofa. Until I say my lines. Until I say what I said that night. Melinda. It was a mistake. It was a horrible mistake. I've tried different words. Different tone, different gestures. Nothing changes. Get away from me! I want to take her in my arms and bury my face in her clotted hair. I want to brush it aside and smell her skin. Somewhere under the carnage is the woman I spent the last dozen years of my life with. Everything is my fault. My dead wife stands in the living room, and the bedroom sheets still smell like her best friend. Melinda raises her head. She's as composed as she can be. I'm, I'm going, Eddie. Don't call me. And that's it. I didn't call her. I didn't follow her begging, and I didn't... Didn't, didn't say don't drive. My legs go limp and I'm kneeling on the floor watching. Sick as it is, I want a drink. That is the only thing different from the first time. Ever since I woke up on the couch to the ringing of the phone and the screeching of the Benatar, the liquor bottles have all been empty. And there are no pills in the bathroom. After all, I wouldn't want to do anything rash. Not again. I miss my Melly. Melinda walks away again. She's crying again. Bile gnaws at my guts. The floor is saturated with her blood. It's deep enough that it splashes as she walks.
The In-Between by Deborah McDuffie. I'm breathless, flattening myself up against the craggy jetty, the sand in my eyes obscuring my view of the creature. As it approaches, I recoil at what I see, mangled stumps trudging through the sand, getting closer. It probes between the rocks with a crooked stick, first slowly exploring every crevice, then desperately jabbing at the lengths of the jetty, its frustration mounting. I'm both repulsed and fascinated by my pursuer. Its upright stance is so foreign to me, and the limbs which it stands upon are lumpy and inefficient. Its graceless movements have me questioning my urge to flee, Watching it awkwardly poke its stick almost makes my breathing slow to normal, but then one look into its soulless, hungry eyes reignites my fear. I thought I would be safe exploring the beach under the cover of night. What could happen? I longed to run my hands along the rough rocks, to let the wet sand dribble through my fingers, to feel the sea breeze brush against my face like an intimate caress. Instead, the rocks are jagged and slippery. The sand is sharp, and the wind is biting. I was so wrong. It is so different here, in between worlds. The dim light must inhibit its sight. The creature trips on a small rock and lands motionless on the beach, blood gushing from its digits. It cries out in a strangled grunt and then falls silent. I attempt to deeply inhale, and as I do, the tangy odor of it threatens to further choke me. The scent is disturbing in its unfamiliarity, but it has inklings of putrefying seaweed, rotting flesh, and a hint of hatred. I brace myself to endure the next leg of this pursuit agonizing over my risky choice and wishing I had stayed in my world. I crawl away, elbow over elbow, from the unconscious fiend, scraping my belly along the rocky sand, feeling the abrasions bleeding and leaving the sand striped with crimson. My wheezing increases and I hope it cannot hear me. As I slither like an eel towards safety, it stirs to life and rolls over, making noises like the humpback whale's song, but with a sinister tone. Its left cheek is shiny, and its face droops unnaturally. Yet somehow, it rises, determined to terrorize my soul despite its many wounds. The beast's footsteps are heavy as it drags its injured leg, and it casts a long shadow across the beach. I thank the glow of the rising moon. Or is it just those garish lights in the distance, illuminating the wooden pathway by the beach, that allows me to keep track of my stalker, to remain one step ahead of it? What compels it to continue the hunt? Is it as mesmerized by me as I am of it? My hiding spot behind the jetty is closer now to the rhythmic waves, which mask the sound of my rasping breaths. That radiant moon's light reflects off my scales, giving them the light and depth of finely cut gems. 
a luminescence the pasty skin of the creature could never have. I pause, growing confident that I can escape with one last push. But something pulls me to remain, to fuel my curiosity. The need to know, to understand, to devour this world. It's the nature of the in-between. I plunge back into the sea, my tail muscles propelling me to the safety of the briny deep, back to the shelter of my home. Door Skin by Policia Rea. The thing that lives in the forest waits deep within the trees. You go left, past the abandoned warehouse, past the shallow lake with the mutant fish, past the burned-down factory, still in too close range of the city. After you head another 16 miles northeast, when your feet wade in ticks and leaves and crunch unruly branches, fighting through terrain where no one goes, you're close. Some bring offerings, though no one knows exactly what it likes. Those who've seen never make it back to tell. But it is known that the thing likes something, because they can hear it laughing and dancing and shrieking in the night when the moon is full in Capricorn. What should I bring the thing, you wonder? The important question you should be asking yourself is, what do I have to give? It's never something material. Anyone can tell you that, from the line of the maimed that lay dead in a circle around the thing's pit, still clutching their jewels, flowers, and herbs. None of these will suffice. If you want to know for yourself, keep walking ahead. As you get closer, you'll feel it. Saliva will start pooling in your mouth. Your jaw will hang with acid and bile spurting out of you, dog sicker than you've ever been. The thing forces the insides out, takes them by surprise. Sometimes stomach contents aren't enough. Sometimes it wants the stomach. When the thing is displeased, you'll know. It'll put you in back of the carcass line, holes gaping so wide from your torso you can count the rocks housed in a red ring through the other side. If you can still stand, make sure to follow the trail of bodies along the spiraling circle. Look for a barren clearing in the center of the woods, where the plants start leaning away. Nothing growing save for a lone tree with an enormous trunk, larger than a building. It's dwelling. This monstrous redwood may look dead, but it has lived for centuries. There is a layer like a sheet nailed on the front ghostly pale across the bark. When you peel back the door skin, you might get stuck on the layers. Keep searching for the lip or nipple or groove that is the door handle. You might feel you're flipping through a heavy book with the folds filthy and foul. There will be a ridge in the heart of the trunk, and that is the only way inside. When you find the groove and pull open the door, it'll be wet in there. Rubbing your eyes, you'll realize it's also pitch dark. You might try to shine in a flashlight, 
then stand there in frustration, slapping the butt of it in your other palm, confused because it's a brand new mag light, uncertain if it's just the batteries. But when you turn to shine it on the ground outside, it'll glow. As you force yourself to enter, placing a foot into the black, you'll take a breath and hold it, wondering if it's safe to breathe. The pungent air will bite. You'll think of the stories, the tales of school children who say it's the last hole to the center of the earth, who've dropped pennies inside and laughed. Then one kid gets dragged down inside, and the other hears that penny finally clank the bottom fifteen years later in their sleep. But this is not the center of the earth. It's just a belly. The thing lives past this door. When you are brave, when you crawl deeper, you might hear your name, someone calling, distant laughing, but it will echo until it recoils, crashing and overlapping to absurdity. Drips will ooze from your ears, drums inside your head. You'll start to feel creatures crawling on you. The thing has pets. Their little nails might leave scratches. Tiny, slimy fingers might catch your ankles and hold you down. When you double over, then fall, that sinking panic never goes, and you aren't ever sure when you're going to hit the ground. Suddenly, there will be a new movement, what you assume to be wind, but in a moment you will find that it is hot, that it is breath, an exhalation. As you feel the teeth sink into your flesh, you'll know you found it, that you're who's been found. When you feel it peeling you, and watch your outsides layer over the alabaster door, you'll become a soft goop of a thing, left only with your eyelashes to keep you warm. You can stay with the others, slipping around, only if you've brought the correct offering. The thing likes skin. Soft, dark, porcelain, tan, covered with ink portraits and lettering, moles and scabs, scars and bullet holes cut through all shades. The thing likes supple, full or saggy, but most of all, infantile. Skin that smells like newborn, skin that's still just made. If you come clutching a body of brand new skin, the thing gives a reward. The thing will make you a pet. Waiting for others to come, you'll stay with the pets slipping around, watching the new arrivals get skinned. The tearing away from muscles like fabric ripping in half will sicken you at first, the door growing heavier and heavier. But one day, millennia and eons of time later, you will notice a quiet. Then you will wake one century as the next thing, first in line for an offering, and you will shriek into light at its smell. I know this, because the thing that lives in the forest is me. Number 72 by Mark Taus. As I reach for the towel, 
The phone's loud and unwelcome tone rings from somewhere in the house. Thankfully, it's only allowed to ring twice. But suddenly, I am distracted by a different noise. A sobbing coming from next door's garden. It's Tom. Our elevated single-story block provides exceptional views of the bay. But it also means we are privy to the neighbors' goings-on. The bathroom window looks directly into their backyard, and it's like a portal into a reality show. But without the pretense for the cameras, a suburban opera of laughter, screaming, shouting and crying. Nobody stays, and when the final curtain falls and the house goes back on the market, Liz and I are never surprised. There have been bad times, but this has been our home for 30 years now. We have raised two children in this house. Carefully stepping back behind the peeling frame of the sash window, I lean close to the open window and try and decipher his morose mumblings. But through the tears and croaking, any lucidity is lost. Carefully, I stretch my neck just enough to be able to see him sitting on the white stone seat that he and Susan frequently share throughout the warm summer evenings. But it's October now. The air has a bite, and he must be cold in that T-shirt. It also occurs to me that I've never seen Tom sitting on that seat by himself. Many people have lived at number 72, but they've never stayed long. I feel silly saying this, but I believe the house is evil. That something menacing lives there too, and like a mold spreading its spores, everyone that inhales it seems to turn bad. Too many strange things have occurred. An abnormal number of dead pets, too many heart attacks, depression, drugs, divorce, and the list goes on. Tom gets up and moves out of my line of sight. Only flashes of his white t-shirt are now visible through the sprawling bushes that leak over our side of the fence. But when I hear the raucous sound of metal on concrete, I guess that he has just picked up the spade, the one I saw him using yesterday to prepare the vegetable patch. They've been talking about growing their own vegetables for the last couple of years. Yesterday, he shouted across the driveway that he was finally ready, and he winked. Even the friendliest people seem to self-destruct in that house. Take the last couple, Tony and Melissa, for example. We even got an invite to the wedding. Their positivity was infectious. In the beginning, anyway. Then the argument started. The usual stuff. Old material that Liz and I have covered many times before. Finances, kids, work and life balance, and so on. But then the accusations came, and through the open bathroom window we heard it all. The screaming and the shouting, the worst names under the sun being bellowed. Windows smashed, doors slammed, plates thrown, and the tears, so many tears. I saw Melissa the day before she stabbed him. Walking around the garden, cigarette held in a shaky hand. Face swollen and eye almost shut. 
I'm pleased to say the wedding never happened. But sad they became another casualty of that house. We loved Tom and Susan as soon as they moved in, and have spent many drunken nights in each other's company. It's the longest anyone has stayed in that house, and we feel honored to have such beautiful people in our lives. Susan and Liz are like sisters, and even started their own book club. Now, I can still hear Tom talking to himself, but can't make out what he is saying. And then he walks over to the fence line and disappears. Seconds later, I see him walking back to the patch of overturned soil carrying four plants. The chatter is becoming more urgent, as though he's spitting words out. I move my head as close to the window as possible without giving myself away. And this time, when he returns to the fence line, he begins to sob. And I can finally understand what he is saying. One word repeated over and over. Sorry. Suddenly, I feel quite sick, almost lightheaded. It's that bad feeling again, something I haven't experienced since Tom and Susan moved in. I tell myself that it's probably nothing, but this isn't like Tom, not one bit. I hear him sniff and blow his nose, and then he's off again with more plants in hand. He stops then and looks down at the dark soil. I can no longer hear him, but I can still see him mouthing the word, sorry, repeatedly. I shuffle away from the window and poke my head down the hallway. This. And then I hear him grunting, and it sounds as though he is lifting something heavy. I tiptoe hastily back to the window and see Tom coming back into view. He is pulling something along. I hold my breath, afraid to give away my presence, and watch as the body-shaped bundle wrapped in bin liners and tied with rope is dragged next to the vegetable patch. My heart begins to thump and the nauseous feeling returns. But I can't take my eyes away as I watch Tom pick up the spade. But suddenly, he looks directly into our bathroom window, and I immediately drop to the floor. Three years of festering malevolence. I stay silent, frozen to the ground. I'm not sure if he saw me, but Dan looked back just in case. I crawl away on all fours into the hallway. Liz. And suddenly, there is a frantic knock at the door. Brian. Susan's voice. But... She bursts into the corridor. Behind her, I can see the silhouette of Tom with the spade. I see the note on the kitchen table then. Liz's handwriting. 
gone next door to get a book from Susan. Back soon. Claw Your Way Out by L.P. Hernandez I wake. My heart pumps a concrete slurry through my veins. How do I know I am awake or alive? The darkness is not like a star-filled night sky, but the darkness of a blind man. Help! My screams fill my ears with my own muffled echo. I gasp, coughing at the coppery stench of my own hot breath. It reflects off the ceiling above me, pouring back into my open mouth. Where am I? How did I come here? My body thrums with pain, fibrous electricity pricking muscles. The worst is above the nape of my neck. Pain, hot and wet, like an overripe tomato. I push against the ceiling of my enclosure, but there is hardly enough clearance to lift my head an inch. What? What is this? I explore the ceiling with my fingertips, searching for a seam or latch. Instead, they find shapes. trace the shapes, recognizing them as letters now. Is this intentional? Fuck, it's hard to breathe. My lungs are like rags, dipped in hot oil. C L A W Claw? I trace the letters again to be sure. Why? Oh, you are W A Y. Claw your way. My fingers are slick with sweat. Oh, you. Oh, fuck. Fuck. Claw your way out. I don't know how I came to be in this coffin, if that's what it is. But it's not an accident. The words were meant for me to find. Claw your way out. With what? I only have my fingers. How much oxygen is left? Ten minutes? An hour? I press my fingernail into the groove of the A in claw. It sinks just a bit, a splinter's worth of what must be wood. I press harder, burrowing with my fingernail, tearing another sliver, and then another. It's it's not enough. It's not enough. I don't have enough time. 
in the background is a single question, hovering over my thoughts like a cloud blocking the sun. Why? Why am I here? If I knew the source of the pain at the nape of my neck, I would have my answer. Struck from behind. Had to be. But I can't think about that now. My fingernails dig into the wood. The letters were scored lightly, but they're still a quicker path to whatever is on the other side. I shred through the A, shavings tickling my chin. No longer an A now. I pick and scrape at it, fingernails throbbing, nails feeling as if they might pop loose. And then one does. I scream. The nail, soft and wet, lands on my lip. Ah, I don't have much time to think about it, about the pain. I switch to my thumb, filling the nail with a crescent of wood and tearing it free. Each breath feels like I'm sucking it out of another man's lungs. Claw your way out. Was it a clue? Or mockery? Did I even have a chance? If I can burrow through even just a pinhole, it might be enough. Fuck! My thumbnail rips in half. The exposed, spongy skin pulsing with both pain and a maddening itch. Fuck it. I have eight nails left. I probe the scarred wood with slick fingertips. How much progress? An eighth of an inch or a quarter? How thick is the wood? God damn it! A splinter burrows into the nail bed of my right middle finger. I seize it with my teeth, elbow pressed against the ceiling. It's like pulling a nerve out of my skin. Hot droplets of blood slide down my tongue. I can't... I can't rest. I can't stop. I have to keep going. Yay is now a small pit. I concentrate on going deeper, not wider. I just need to breach the surface. I just need some air I haven't already held in my lungs. Within a minute... I'm down to six fingernails, and I don't imagine the pinkies will be very effective. Four good fingernails left. The crater is wet with my blood and sweat, and my fingertips scream, raw nail beds electrified. My blood plinks onto my forehead. Only, it feels cold. It's a relief, the cool sensation, but... It also shouldn't be. I stop digging, reclaim my trembling fingers, but the blood continues to splatter. Cold, cold blood. Oh my god. I press the pad of my thumb into the deepest part of the crater. Oh fuck. Not blood. Water. Cold water. I am underwater. 
claw your way out. It wasn't a clue. How much water is above me? Ten feet? Or one hundred? Could I break through fast enough to find out? Or, or would the tomb fill with water in the effort? I fidget with my wedding ring for half a second before I realize I've not done so in a year. Why am I wearing my wedding ring? It feels strange. The skin is sensitive as my exposed nail beds. Oh, oh fuck. As if responding to the memory, the still throbbing flesh of my neck pulses with fresh pain. A conversation with my ex-father-in-law. He said it with a smile on his face, but I remembered the strength of his grip on my forearm. Just don't hurt my girl, okay? It's not asking much. And uh, if you do, <laughs> well, there's this lake, you see. It's it's fed by snowmelt, cold all year round. Not really good for water sports, you know? No families there, and the fishing shit. No, it's really only good for one thing. There's a pinprick of cold on the pad of my thumb. A needle of water, anxious to become a torrent. What do I do now? I take an unsatisfying breath and follow it with another. I could be at the bottom of that lake. I could be in an oversized bathtub with the lights turned off. There's only one way to know. Claw your way out. My daughter's TikToks are dangerous by Mr. Michael Squid. Concerned parents started messaging me about a week ago regarding my daughter Evelyn's TikTok videos. The parents were apparently furious, explaining how their own children had seriously injured themselves or nearly died copying her behavior. Both confusion and horror drove me to click the links to her account, though I wish more than anything that I hadn't. I let out a horrified gasp as I watched Evelyn, caked in makeup and wearing a far too revealing outfit, perform challenges that other girls her age and younger, apparently, had been copying. She'd smile her perfect teeth through cherry red lipstick and bop left and right to some popular song as she enacted these trends she was apparently starting. The first one chilled my blood. Evelyn bobbed her head back and forth while plugging a phone charger into an outlet 
in an overly dramatic manner. My heart sped as I watched her continue to film herself from inside what appeared to be a bathroom. The image of her face was suddenly warped and shifted, and I realized then that the camera was filming from within the water of a bathtub. On the bottom of the image was the hashtag LiquidSelfie. My heart pounded as I clicked the other links that had been directed my way, as if I was somehow to blame. The next was even more disturbing. Evelyn performed a sultry dance of sorts in a crop top before placing the phone down on a surface. She then danced back from the camera, revealing a short skirt and fishnet stockings. I watched in horror as she then dragged into frame a wooden chair with a large kitchen knife heavily duct taped to the front edge laid up. I swallowed the lump that grew in my throat as I watched Evelyn hold her hands over her head before arching backward into a backbend over the knife. The blade's tip was mere centimeters from her spine, and she nearly slipped before laughing into the camera, finishing with the handstand and clearing the dangerous obstacle. 1.2M was on the bottom right of the screen under a heart icon, and I felt sweat trickle down my forehead when I realized what that meant. 1.2 million likes. 59.5 thousand shares. At the bottom of this particular clip was the hashtag bladed backbend. I clicked on the profile of my dolled up smiling daughter and my jaw dropped open. There were almost a dozen different trends she apparently had been proliferating throughout the internet in the past week and a half. In every one, she was scantily clad and smiling as she performed each terribly dangerous feat. I made the mistake of clicking the comments section of one. There were hundreds of messages from people who were all clearly impressed, adoring Evelyn and the dangerous actions performed in her videos. Many replies were videos of other users who'd copied the challenges and mimicked her routines. I didn't have the heart to click on those. The girls that seemed to all be inspired by her and copying her actions looked young and naive. It broke my heart. I glanced through a few more, clenching my jaw at the sight of each of the shocking and extremely dangerous challenges Evelyn was broadcasting to the world. In one short video... She'd propped up the phone on the edge of a rooftop and danced her way backward until her entire body, dressed in a low-cut romper, was in view. 
I could tell she was a few stories high. The city's skyscrapers were visible in the background. I felt a queasiness in my stomach as I watched my daughter walk backward five paces, then proceed to do a series of cartwheels towards the camera, less than an inch from the edge of the building. 510k likes, 21.8k shares. My mind jumped to all those young, impressionable girls who looked to Evelyn as some sort of role model. Evelyn all dressed up, smiling and dancing as she flirted with disaster in a series of deadly performances that seemed to be spreading across the internet like wildfire. Eventually, I closed the app and deleted it from my phone. I'd seen enough. I will not share her username for others to discover her account. I want those posts to get as little exposure as possible. Though it seems too late, as her followers are in the hundreds of thousands. There are extremely dangerous trends making the rounds on TikTok, and if you have a child, I'd strongly advise monitoring their activity. I've tried contacting the app's customer support to take down her account, but have had no luck so far. Aside from that, there's nothing we can do. I trembled with pain and sadness when I learned about these dangerous and impossible posts. The threat to the safety of others is horrific to say the least but not as horrific as the reality of the situation I'm now witnessing. My wife and I have already been devastated with grief, so it's almost too much to bear. The fact of the matter is, Evelyn died in a car accident back in April. These disturbing posts on her account began just a week and a half ago nearly two months after her death. It seems like she's been getting lonely. The Night Train by Dennis Mombauer the train floated into the countryside on a bed of rattling steel. Outside the night world passed by, an ocean floor with patches of luminous sand, a black void overcast by reflections. Stations erupted in a gust of lamps and platforms before they vanished into the dark again. Lucas closed his eyes and reclined into his seat. His backpack served as a barrier to one side, the window to the other. A trash can closed with a snap. Someone rustled a paper bag. A group of men debated urban infrastructure, lamenting the disappearance of sports fields. Their voices were soft. They ran together with the noises of the train. Hey, is this seat taken? Lucas flinched, suddenly wide awake. A woman stood before him, covered in absurd layers of clothing. 
A hoodie, gloves, a pulled-up scarf, a blouse hanging out below, an army jacket draped above. She held a huge suitcase with greasy corners, and it reeked. Can I sit? Lucas looked around. Every other seat on the train was taken, even though the compartment had been empty when he boarded. Yes, of course. He took the backpack onto his lap and let the woman squeeze in next to him. Lucas smelled vodka and stale sweat, like someone who hadn't showered in a week. Can I borrow your phone? I forgot mine. It's an urgent call. What? She held out her hand, the glove crisscrossed by deep lines. Lucas looked around again. No one paid attention to them, although it was hard to discern anyone's faces in the dim light. Where are we? The display board showed the time to Lucas's stop, where they should arrive in ten minutes. I saw something in a shard of glass. Can I use your phone real quick? One call. I... I don't... Lucas didn't want to hand her the phone, but he felt bad to lie. Here, but please be quick. I have to get off at the next station. Hmm. The phone vanished between the woman's paws as she took it from him and put it down on the top of her suitcase. She stared at it, her outlines blurred and distorted by the layers of clothing. She had to be drenched in sweat, dying of a heat more intense than Lucas wanted to imagine. The phone vibrated on the suitcase, and Lucas heard the familiar opening of his ringtone. That's for me. The woman continued to stare, not moving her hands or her head. Lucas's phone was not the only one that rang. Across the compartment, the faceless travellers received calls in an orchestra of different tunes, from shrill bursts of pop to gentle melodies. Thank you. With two words, the woman let a shudder run down Lucas's back and made his bones contract. He didn't know why, but he grabbed the phone, unlocked the screen and declined the call. It was too late. The signal had been given. The woman stood up and pulled off her gloves, then shed the army jacket. She unwrapped the scarf and unzipped the hoodie, unbuttoned the blouse and stripped out of her pants, and with every piece of clothing, she shrunk before Lucas's eyes as if she had been filled with air, as if there was only a tiny and brittle thing below. She peeled away the layers of fabric and leather that encased her and dissolved into tendrils of shadow, into a carapace of leaking gas and sharp flashes of teeth that snapped shut. Within seconds, the woman collapsed into a pile of used rags and a suitcase with greasy corners. And as Lucas looked around with wide eyes, he saw that all the other passengers had disappeared, like butterflies hatched from human cocoons. Hey. Hey. Lucas jolted against the window, disoriented as he surfaced from his slumber. Something shook his shoulder, a soft and warm paw covered in fabric. Isn't this your stop? Mm, yes, yes it is. Lucas pushed himself out of the seat and passed the woman. Thank you. He ran and reached the doors just in time, his backpack swinging on one strap. Cold air carried announcements over the station and rushed into his lungs, warning all passengers to step away from the edge. Lucas breathed in and breathed out. The train closed its doors and accelerated again, its lighted windows rolling past. 
Lucas recognized the seat he had sat in, the woman in her heaps of clothing. She was wreathing, quivering with motion as she rushed out of sight with the rest of the compartment. The last thing Lucas saw was her gloves falling to the floor and her shoulders sinking down, just as if there had been nothing underneath. Bubble Bath by Anne Gresham If I ignore the thick layer of dust glinting in the slatted sunlight, our bathroom looks like we left just earlier this morning. The shower caddy still holds my half-empty shampoo and conditioner. Rob's curly hair is still knotted in the drain. My daughter is still here too, wandering in small circles like she used to as a toddler. Misty, no! I would snap while she rummaged through my makeup or tossed my earrings in the sink. She's not interested in making messes like that anymore. I'd felt like a bad mom when I couldn't wait for her bedtime to arrive. I'd feel guilty when we found ourselves in the drive through for the third night in a row, or when I plonked her in front of back-to-back Pixar movies so I could work. In retrospect, all that guilt is laughable compared to what I carry now. She's right where I left her when the transports picked up survivors four weeks ago. Rob's body has been collected, at least. The stain in the corner looks like someone spilled a glass of wine. I'd never wanted a gun in the house. I lectured Rob that we were much more likely to die from gun violence because of it. But I'd never dreamed I'd shoot him myself. Or that he'd beg me to. I slide into the bathroom and edge around Misty. She's harmless now. Rob managed to neutralize her before she bit him. Her eyes have a glacial film over them. But I swear I can still see some of my little girl in there. It makes me doubt what I've come here to do. Her hunger and frustration are apparent. I think about the way she cried as a baby and the panicky jolt it gave me. I couldn't breastfeed. I thought I was done grieving for that. But I feel that same sick desperation lodging deep inside me now. I can't feed her with my body now either. Thanks to the neutralization. I start the bath and adjust the temperature until it's just right. I don't know if she can feel pain anymore, but I don't want to take chances. She always hated baths, 
The Rosoxyl comes in a white pouch, covered in sternly worded warnings. They're letting civilians give it to family members now, though, provided they've been documented and neutralized like Misty. Otherwise, they're just hosing down known infected. I've seen videos of walking corpses spasming in rage and pain before they collapse. I can't let her go like that. The Rosoxyl is different from a bullet to the brain. It does more than stop the infected. Of course, it also destroys any other organic matter it touches. It's incredibly dangerous, and it probably saved the human race. So here I am, preparing to give my little girl a bath. Misty can't focus on much. Her eyes loll around in their sockets. Sometimes she nods her head like she's enthusiastically agreeing. It'd be funny if I didn't know she was trying to bite. Or if her lower jaw wasn't gone. Neutralized. Afterward, Rob stood with his back against the wall. He was so brave until just before I pulled the trigger. He screamed, wait! But I had already started to squeeze. No way! I empty the pouch of Rosoxyl under the water and pretend it's her lavender-scented bubble bath. This will be my last act as a parent. I'm going to do it right. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm going to be proud of myself as a mom this one time. I gently grip her shoulders and guide her toward me. She shambles forward and lets me pull her dress over her head. It's the blue one with lace edging she picked out herself for picture day. Her fine black hair is plastered to her forehead and neck, and I brush it out of her eyes. She makes a mewling sound. I remember all the ways I tried to lure her into the bathtub when she was a squealing toddler. We'd pretend to be whales, fish, mermaids. We'd squirt each other with rubber ducks. I'd trace the alphabet on her back with a soapy finger. I don't think any of that is going to work now. I imagine her screwed up face when she got her first round of shots. I think about every scratch, scrape. The one awful night in the ER after she broke her arm, falling off her changing table. The suffering on her face now is unmistakable. She's been alone and hungry, unable to feed herself thanks to the mangling we gave her back when we still hoped for a cure. They say they can't think anymore and they don't have any memories. I hope it's true. But I also hope part of her still recognizes me. I sing our bath song to coax her in. 
Misty lets out a moan, punctuated by a wet gurgle. Without thinking, I dip my finger in the water to test the temperature. It doesn't hurt, but my finger just shrivels. Misty steps up her moaning and backs away. It's okay, sweetheart. It's okay. I realize what I have to do. When she was a tiny baby, the only way she'd take a bath was if I got in with her. She'd curl up on my chest and go to sleep. And so that's what we'll do now. I pull off my sweater, step out of my jeans, and gather her to me. She jerks a little bit, but she lets me ease us both into the poisoned water. I kiss her head. I love you, and tell her I love her before we're both gone. This much I can get right. Perfect Harmony by A.C. McAnally. Must you do that? You have anything else for me to do? Oh, I could think of some things that. Yeah, anything that won't make me vomit. <sighs> you could go check on our audience. I can hear them from here. They're as impatient as me. <sighs> Sorry to keep you waiting tonight. My plus one was giving me a bit of trouble. <laughs> Ooh, looks like you have your hands full there. Lively one, or just a fat one? Ah, <laughs> uh, bit of both. <laughs> just let me catch my breath, and we can begin. <sighs> Is the rest of our audience ready? Ready as they'll ever be, I should say. Well then, Charles, would you be a gentleman and help me get our last guest seated with the rest of our audience? Oh, you know I would. Uh, Rose, do make yourself useful and get our maestro ready. <laughs> As if she's not already. Just let me go. Please let me go. Please let me go. Oh, no, no. 
Good then. Thanks for your help, Charles. No problem, Addy. Is she ready, Rose? I do believe so. Okay then. Let's start her favorite tune. children. A perfect harmony as usual. And a perfect meal to sustain me. Thank, Thank you, you mistress. mistress. So, same time next week...
Perfectly Still by Mr. Michael Squid. My alarm pulled me from my dream, and groggily, I sat up in bed. Pre-programmed rituals and preparation for work were aborted once I realized it was Saturday. I'd forgotten to change the alarm to weekdays only. I smiled and lay my head down on the pillow for just a moment. It was quiet, but not exactly serene. It was eerily quiet. No chirping birds, no hum of lawnmowers. Not a single sound was to be heard. I walked over to the window and saw my neighbor Jeremy standing on his lawn. He was dressed in his bathrobe and slippers, a plastic-bagged newspaper in his hand. But something was very off. Something surreal in his lack of motion. He was frozen in place, like a statue. I watched for a few minutes, expecting him to snap out of whatever had locked him in place. But he just stood there, motionless. Some inner fear stirred within me while I watched him. I quickly dressed and shuffled down the stairs, eager to get a better look at Jeremy. Through the window, I saw another one of my neighbors, Mrs. Peterson, standing in front of her car, her keys in her hand. She too stood motionless. She appeared to have been paused in time, just moments before unlocking her car. Her mouth was stuck in a strange frown. Something unnatural was going on, and it chilled my blood the longer I stared at the two unmoving people. I contemplated the cause of the phenomenon, running through a few far-fetched scenarios. Some time bubble causing a blip in the time stream, perhaps. I've been an avid science fiction reader since my youth, and I felt a slight exhilaration at the prospect of witnessing an event from the pages of my favorite authors. My mind then drifted to the more logical explanations. Some playful contest between them, maybe. Or something darker. Some chemical attack that rendered their muscles paralyzed. I stood gaping out the window at the bizarre scene, before finally deciding my need for answers was too agonizing to ignore. I let out a deep sigh and slipped on my shoes before opening my front door. I walked down my driveway towards them. They were still mimicking statues on their front lawns. I shivered, but it took me a second to realize what I was feeling. It was the sense of being watched. My neck hairs raised, and then I heard it. The slapping of heavy feet on the street to my left, sprinting full speed towards me. Stop moving! The hoarse voice of a child yelled out to me from some window nearby. I heard heavy breathing, deep and almost animal-like. I swear I could feel warm, wet exhalations on the back of my neck. Rank breaths from whatever had been chasing me before it came to a complete stop. Just feet behind me. It only sees you when you move. As to what it was is another question entirely. My heart beats heavy and fast in my chest as I stand frozen in place. Mrs. Peterson is in my line of sight, her arm lowered slightly and beginning to shake. I wonder if she'll succumb to fatigue before Jeremy. I want to ask the child what it is, or where it had come from, or if there are more than one. I won't be asking my questions, though. 
I'll be statuesque until one of the others gets too exhausted to stand motionless. And then I'll make a run for it. I'll wait until it senses its prey. And when the scream erupts, I'll try to make it back to my house. In the meantime, I'll breathe slow, shallow breaths. I'll remain like the others, sizzling under the baking sun, muscles locked and strained awkwardly mid-stride. Perfectly still. Justified Abduction by Manon Lysette. Some will say I did it for money. Others will say I did it for fame. Tabloids will act like I was some deranged, obsessed fan that felt slighted by the starlet for ignoring me. I'm sure they'll say a lot of things. They'll be wrong on all None of those are the reason why she's bashing against the inside of my trunk right now, desperate to break free. No one will understand why I did this to her at the very peak of her fame. They'll be so focused on the who and why and the tragedy of it all that they'll never properly investigate the how. The flames will not have come from any identifiable source. There won't be an accelerant, though their spread will be quick and unnatural. They'll chew through metal like stomach acid through food. There's going to be very little left of her. Of either of us. Just enough for a positive ID on her end. But not on mine. It's because we have a debt, the two of us. Unrelated, but similar. She sold her soul for fame. I rented mine out for a quick buck when I needed a hit. The man in gray told me if I helped him collect on hers, I'd be forgiven on mine. That's why I'm here now, watching the eerie black flames suck the lights out of my car. I can smell hell in all its sulfuric stench and hear the sound of not just her screams, but thousands more. It's coming for her. I won't survive this, but at least my soul won't be dragged down with her. My debt is repaid. (laughs) 
your submissions to our annual writing contest by Jackie Wright. To j.sayer at zmail.com from tr at igash.org Subject, your submission to our annual writing contest. Date, 21st of March, 2021. Dear J, hope you're having a marvellous Sunday. With reference to your email dated 27 Jan 2021, I am pleased to confirm that you have been selected as one of the three lucky winners of our magazine's annual writing contest. Please find enclosed an edited version of your short story titled The Hunt. Kindly check the attachment and let us know your thoughts. We have made a few minor adjustments to the plot, which we hope you will find acceptable. If you are satisfied with this version of your story, we will be awaiting your confirmation to proceed by the end of next working week, 26th March 2021. If we do not hear back, we will assume that you have read the document and are still willing to uphold your end of the bargain as per the terms and conditions of this competition. Being a faithful reader of our annual magazine, I hope you understand that we are on a tight schedule and need to set the wheels in motion at the earliest to ensure our extraordinary community can experience your writing as soon as possible. Please also find attached one train ticket to Stonehaven. The train leaves at 6.15am on the 27th of March 2021. Travelling alone to your desired destination was an important part of your short story, so we honoured your wish. Make sure you do not miss the train as we will meet you at Donata Woods at 8am sharp. In case it is too stressful for you to travel alone on the date mentioned, we will send a few members of our staff to take care of you during this exciting journey. One last thing. It has been brought to our attention by your loyal neighbour that ever since you submitted the story to this contest, you have tried to flee the town on multiple occasions. You need not worry. Your driver's licence and passport are now safe with us. After all, you are a part of our family now, and we want everything to go according to your plan, because it is our utmost priority to bring your story to life as authentically as possible. If you have any questions, feel free to call using the burner phone that was delivered to you this morning, and kindly ensure that this email is deleted as soon as you memorize the instructions and download your train ticket. Until your departure on the 27th of March 2021, you are not allowed to leave your property as per the rules and restrictions applicable to this competition. An attempt to leave the premises will be treated as a major disobedience and your loved ones will be punished accordingly. Once again, thank you for submitting your writing to our annual The Last Days in the Life of a Murder Victim Contest. And we look forward to experiencing a taste of your talent soon. Best regards, TR, Project Coordinator, International Guild of Authors, 
and skull hoarders. Hugh's Friend, written by Mark Towes. Sometimes we are caught off guard. My school friends and I were taking a tour of some old buildings on a history class excursion, and as we walked down the concrete steps towards the cellar of one of the houses, the damp air hit me, and I started to sob. It felt familiar. That was the day I told my friends about Hugh. As a general rule of thumb, imaginary friends would come out on request. Hugh didn't play by the rules. He was a prick. Some things he said were truths. Others were just fibs. On my 10th birthday, he told me I was adopted and that the papers were in the third drawer of my mum's dresser. All I found was a bunch of knickers and what looked to be a torch that vibrated. Hugh told me that my mum used to shove the torch so far up her doodah you could see her tonsils. I didn't believe him, obviously, and thought him full of crap. He also told me that my mum was sleeping with the mailman and that my dad was a serial killer. I remember asking her one day if she was having the sex with the postman. She laughed. I was in pursuit of Hugh one day as he sprinted ahead down the hallway and towards the back of the house. Where are you going? My dad always said the cellar was a work in progress, too dangerous for children. Hugh, I'm not allowed in there. Even mum isn't. But I turned the handle anyway. The door was locked. He pointed to a jar on top of the cupboard and I reluctantly grabbed the key and unlocked it. I recall the cool blast as the door opened to reveal descending stairs. Of course, the trigger for the recent tears. Nothing happened as I flicked the light switch on. Hugh was unfazed. Oh yes, in the cupboard next to the door. I went back and grabbed the torch. What are we doing here, Hugh? Keep going. Nearly there. Push that last panel, Jack. I did, and it moved inwards. How do you know all this, Hugh? As I stepped inside and swept the torch around, I shrieked and dropped it. Scrambling on the floor, clawing at the dusty ground, I eventually clamped my fingers around the handle and directed the shaking beam forwards again. The little boy recoiled and covered his eyes. I quickly moved the torch to the left, out of his direct line of sight, noticing the chain attached to a bolt in the floor and the empty plate and glass sat atop the dirty mattress next to him. This is Peter. As I turned around to shine the torch towards Hugh, I saw the etchings on the wooden interior of the room. Hugh was here. Years later, telling my friends this story, I saw the shock in their eyes. I could only shrug. And that is how the mailman became my new dad. Scarecrow by Davis Walden. 
Every year, Diego Desmond and I make a scarecrow to celebrate Halloween. We've been doing it since middle school. We've known each other all our lives, but I've changed a lot in the past year. And it's all my fault because I came out of the closet. We still do the same things together, but it it feels different, you know? At least we have this. I might be different now, but at least this hasn't changed. I fist more stuffing into this scarecrow's chest cavity as Diego ties the scarecrow to its post. Once we're done, Desmond finishes up the stitching. Stitches for the mouth, stitches for the chest and stomach. Desmond pats me on the back. He tells me I did a good job picking out the scarecrow. His name is Noah. I met him on Grinder last night. He was a nice guy. A real stand-up guy. Monsters by Melissa Elborn The monsters come out at night. When you are in your bed, they're waiting for you to fall asleep. Except they find ways to keep you awake. Choking you. Squashing the air out of your lungs. It's better to stay awake. Then one night the monsters are gone. And you forget all about them. It's just something you used to be scared of when you were a kid. Many years pass and you are all grown up. You hear a voice you recognize, and then you realize the same monsters are in your head. Now you're never alone. The monsters talk for you. Dress you in clothes you would never wear. Do things with your body that make you sick and want to cry. You shrink and the monsters grow. One day, it is no longer you and the monsters. It's just you. A monster. Suddenly Shocking Volume 14 was produced by Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett for the No Sleep Podcast. Featuring performances by Kyle Akers, David Alt, Matthew Bradford, Jeff Clement, James Cleveland, Jesse Cornett, Andy Cresswell, David Cummings, Mike Delgadio, Kristen DiMercurio, Nicole Doolin, Nicole Goodnight, Ellie Hirschman, Atticus Jackson, Peter Lewis, Aaron Lillis, Danielle McRae, Mary Murphy, Graham Rowett, Erica Sanderson, Penny Scott Andrews, Sarah Thomas, Wafia White, Mick Wingert, and Dan Zapula. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. 
Visit thenosleeppodcast.com to learn more about our show and our season pass memberships. Thank you for listening to Suddenly Shocking, Volume 14. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, 